When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Grief Sandwich Edition. It's Wednesday, July 2nd, 2014. On today's show, They Came Together sends up romantic comedies like Spinal Tap did to rock and roll, Could It Kill Off a Genre Forever? Then The Leftovers is brain teaser TV in the true detective mode. It's pretty gripping, but is it a little too metaphysical, perhaps? And finally, Clickhole is The Onion's new parody website. Joining me today is Slate's deputy editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, we're uh, not of course, uh, the opposite of course, Dana Stevens is out this week and replacing her is, whether adequately or inadequately, we'll discover soon enough, John Swansburg, who is editorial director of Slate. John, are you up to it? Do you think you can be as like kind of universally beloved and clever with a tincture of acid as um, uh, Dana Stevens is? Uh, no, definitely not. I could never aspire to be as wonderful as Dana, but I will do my darndest to be entertaining nonetheless. That was a really warm welcome, Steve. Yeah, seriously. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. All right. Well, anyway, They Came Together is an absurdist parody in the airplane mode of romantic comedies. It was directed by David Wayne and written by Wayne and Michael Showalter, both veterans of the state and adult swim. It stars Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd, and it sends up every cliche in the rom-com playbook. Why don't you listen to a clip from the movie? Joel Molly, how'd you two meet? Oh, boy. Well, that's a long story. Yeah. Oh, we got time. Waiter. More wine? Well, it's kind of a corny, romantic comedy kind of story. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Really? How so? Well, Joel's kind of a typical romantic comedy leading man, you know? He's handsome, but in a non-threatening way. Yeah, I could see that. Vaguely, but not overtly Jewish. You're right. Just Jewish enough. And Molly is the kind of cute, klutzy girl that sometimes will drive you a little bit crazy, but you can't help but fall in love with her. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So we have our main characters. Not quite. There was another character that was just as important as the two of us. Mm. New York City. Ah. Mm. So New York City is like another character. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so much promise. <laughs> so much promise in this premise. Did you guys feel like it achieved liftoff? I lifted off. Let me put it this way. I laughed consistently all the way through, but... I, it's a very hard premise to sustain, isn't it, John Swansburg? I think it is a very hard premise to sustain because, uh, for one thing, you kind of have to keep hitting the same beats that the romantic comedy hits. And I felt like the movie sometimes mocked them in withering, hilarious fashion, like that setup we just listened to was really well done. But other times during the movie, I was sort of sitting there waiting for the next turn that I knew was coming because I've seen romantic comedies before and sort of fidgeting and kind of looking at my watch, even though the movie was only 83 minutes long. And, and I, did, I felt like sometimes it skewered those, the, those conventions well, and other times it was done less well. And I felt like the batting average by the end of the movie was, you know, like a respectable 258. 
<laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it. I laughed a lot, actually. You know, it's certainly a, a pleasant way to pass the time. But it didn't quite tip over. I mean, the one the one credit you did not mention in your setup of this film, Steve, is Wet Hot American Summer, which is the cult classic and utterly beloved send-up of the summer camp movie made by the same creators and many of the same actors 10, more than 10 years ago now, 10, 15 years ago. And I was trying to figure out why this movie, despite being a scant 83 minutes long, still feels a little bit slack and uneven. Like some, the funny bits were very funny, but all together I wasn't like, you got, I don't want to take anyone by the lapels and be like, you've got to see this film. You've just got to. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out why that might be. And I wonder if it's that the summer camp movie is a less predictable beast and thus it is possible to send it up in a fashion that can take on its own plot and its own form and have its own satisfactions where as the template of the romantic comedy is just so known at this point that this movie was sort of predictable and the characters didn't seem to have real selves or lives beyond their parody of the structure of it. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm misremembering What Hot American Summer, but I feel like those characters were deeply weird but somehow real as opposed to just cardboard figures being moved around. I think that's exactly mm -hmm. right. I actually went back and watched What Hot American Summer Sunday night and like completely enjoyed it as much as I did the first and second and third time I'd seen it, you know, <laughs> whatever that was 10 years ago. Uh, and I think your analysis is, is spot on. And also I think that those guys, Wayne and Showalter, really love the summer camp movie. And so while it was a send-up of that genre, it was also kind of like a, a slightly more loving send-up. Like they were kind of turning up the volume on the absurdity of some of those movies, but they were also just kind of, you could tell that they had probably grown up watching those films and loving them and obsessing over them. Whereas here, this isn't like a, a sort of mean-spirited movie, but it's, I think it's a more meant to be a more pointed satire of the romantic comedy. And I feel like as a result, it's a little bit, little bit less fun. Also, What Hot American Summer is just more absurdist. Like my favorite moments in They Came Together are the truly absurd moments, the truly ridiculous flights of fancy, like when they go to a fancy French restaurant and Paul Rudd's character says, God, it seems like that waiter has a pole up his ass. And then the guy turns around and it turns out he does have a pole up his ass, like literally has a pole in his butt. And he's like knocking. It's, uh, like, a, it's like tetherball pole size. Like <laughs> yeah, <it's> not... <laughs> like a flagpole, like a small flagpole <laughs> uh, in his butt. And he's like knocking over the china. And uh, I kind of love it when those, those guys go there. And What Hot American Summer has more moments like that where they just they completely let go of any grasp on reality. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't see Wet Hot American Summer. I'm embarrassed to say now I'm going to run out and see it. But I, this movie kept reminding me of Spinal Tap. I think Spinal Tap is 83, and it was, it was still early enough in the transition from album rock and roll to hip-hop that it was shocking to send up the pieties of rock and roll. And what you discovered as you watched the movie is, in fact, how rote and how routine the story of a band had become and uh, you realize it's no longer possible to like meet your, your school chum on the subway platform and form the Rolling Stones that that had gotten really long in the tooth and so it brought to consciousness something you were already half aware of which is that this thing really has gotten routine you know this thing that's supposed to be the opposite of routine has gotten completely standardized so it raises I think all these interesting questions about romantic comedies and I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this can you not make a rom-com anymore in the same way that you can't form the Rolling Stones on a subway platform? And if you can't, or if you can't really make one the way we used to make them, is that does that say something about the state of movies, about audience expectations, or the decay of romance? I mean, what what is that about? The decay of romance? <laughs> wow. That's a lot to pin well, <laughs> modern culture. <laughs> well, one thought I had coming off of your Spinal Tap observation was that I think one reason that this movie fell a little flat for me, at least in parts, is that 
I didn't have that feeling in watching They Came Together that, oh, my God, they, they are pointing out that the tropes and the, the format of the traditional romantic comedy have gotten so long in the tooth. I didn't even realize like how ridiculous these conventions were until this movie held them up to the light to me. On the contrary, I sort of felt like this movie was making fun of romantic comedy traits that already feel very hoary mm-hmm. in our culture. And, and honestly, like a lot of the jokes about romantic comedies in this movie were jokes about you've got mail. I mean, this was like sending up a romantic comedy sort of circa 1996, uh, to my mind, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And it sort of didn't grapple with uh, the evolution of the romantic comedy uh, in the more recent times. I mean, I think if you watch a movie like Bridesmaids, like there's so much more going on in that sort of contemporary uh, version of the romantic comedy that this movie is sort of left aside in order to kind of skewer the, you know, muffin ordering uh, punctiliousness of Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally. And like what they, you know, they had fun in that scene, but the movie felt a little belated to me. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And actually um, on Script Notes, the podcast I endorsed last week, there was an episode with David Wayne where he talked about the process of making the movie and it was an old script. It was a script they wrote. I forget exactly, but at least five years ago, maybe more, shortly after Wet Wet Hot American Summer that they shopped around and nobody made it. And then they did a reading of it a few years ago with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler and it it got great response at the reading. And Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler were like, well, we don't have any time in our busy schedules, but let's just make this. So they did. And then they had to adjust it in response to, you know, anyway, you should listen to the podcast. It's a good story. But I think you're right on the money, John, that, that they're skewering an older version of what the romantic comedy used to do. And I think you know, in terms of whether there can be romantic comedies anymore, Steve, I think there are fewer of them, and the ones that there are have to be a little bit cleverer and kind of transcend some of these tropes already. So it's almost like the Hollywood machine has gotten smarter than the satirists here, and that's never a position you want to be in in a satirist. You never want to have the the actual product you're satirizing make you look a little bit dumb and and slow-footed. No, that means the satirists are behind the eight ball point well taken. But, I mean, you know, the fact that something has become factory product and utterly predictable has never, ever slowed the assembly line in Hollywood one tiny bit, right? So there's something about we're all completely aware of how uh, predictable action movies and, and, you know, movies based on comic books are. And here comes Transformers number, you know, N plus one, right? I mean, and, and yet there is something about like we have zero tolerance for i mean i the forum i mean do you think the forum is still alive john that that bridesmaids is really a rom-com it doesn't seem to me to be a romantic comedy in its essence yeah well i think it's it's it has elements of the romantic comedy but it's also about female friendship and i think that that's probably where most of the runtime of that movie is concentrated and the reason that people love it so much Mm. so in a way yeah maybe it doesn't fit the genre it's not a genre i much like or ever have liked, even at its pinnacle. So I don't know if I'm the person to to you know uh, sign its death certificate or, or or not. I don't you know I don't I've never thrilled to the romantic comedy or at least because right, uh, so. the romance the romance has decayed within you. Yeah, well, exactly. Man, the last romantic comedy that I liked was The Apartment. So you know, there you go. I think you and I agree on that, <laughs> Steve. No. Oh, you people are insufferable. The, uh, come on, the romantic comedies can be great, and you have to swoon a little bit for it, and you have to believe in the characters, and that's why. Like I think the ideal romantic comedy would send up the romantic comedy, but also transport you to a land of feeling like maybe these characters are meant for each other in some goofy, beyond absurdist way. Like I think that might deliver some of the satisfaction. Okay, to but the give me, comedy. give me, give me a title. Give me a name. What was the last movie that did that? I mean, I'm drawing a blank. I really liked definitely maybe, which is pretty old, but um, it's. Oof, I think it's. But that's what 
how that's at least seven years old. It's still newer generation than uh, <laughs> than the apartment. <laughs> than the apartment. <laughs> it was made after Billy Wilder died. Um, you know, I mean, I think we have seen. It the... happened one night. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't think they're making as many as they used to. And I think this, I think you've seen movies evolve around it. Like they're not just hiring Catherine Heigl to be in romantic comedies the way they were even four or five years ago. You know, we've seen things like 500 Days of Summer, which was sort of a send up of the conceit and, and took structural liberties with it. We've seen something like Dr- Bridesmaids, which foregrounds the relationship with the best friend as opposed to the relationship with the guy. We've seen people playing with the form. And I think that's. Okay, but but let's push on this just a little bit, though. Isn't it? It has to be generational, right? There was something about the you know confluence of different audience demographics that in the eighties and nineties, this was a major form, you know pop art form, the romantic comedy. Since we can zero out repetitiveness and and predictability as reasons not for Hollywood not to make a movie. What is the reason? It must be, I think it's got to be a demographic fact that the tolerance for a certain kind of screen romance is actually quite low right now. Well, I think probably the biggest change in the way Hollywood thinks about funding movies has to do with the global market for movies. And the thing that you often read in analyses of this, and I don't know enough to know whether it's true or not, but it sounds plausible, is that as these films are getting, you know, the films that get the budget, that get the backing, that get the marketing are films that can be anticipated to open huge all around the globe mm-hmm. and have global stakes. Mm-hmm. So in every single movie, the world is on the line and something's getting blown up and, a, you know, a pair of sinewy scientists, one male, one female, are forever having to band together across the globe to save humankind. I mean, there's romance of a sort in there, but it's just buried under <laughs> right. a lot of flamethrowers. Right. <laughs> um, and I think I think that's probably the reason more than anything about the our generational receptivity to romance. You're not going to get me to say basically that the rise of internet porn has led to the demise <laughs> of romantic comedy. I don't know if that's what you're driving at. You seem to be but I got you, away. But, but to the ever-sufferable uh, Julia Turner, I say, I got you someplace interesting, which is that you're telling me that the satire gets it exactly wrong, that in fact romantic comedies are not generic enough for the global marketplace which is why the form has died, which is why this is untimely. This movie's untimely. Well, I think QED. It... <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I say my favorite scene? I know we've talked about this movie for a long time, but I really liked that he's right in the beginning. The Paul Rudd character is going to propose to like the bad girlfriend who you know she's bad because her name is Tiffany. Um, and <laughs> he goes and plays a game of pickup basketball with all of his friends. <laughs> and his, each friend sort of represents a viewpoint, and they start by saying... You know, like, you got it. You just got to get out there and get laid every night. That's what being a man is about. And then the married one is like, marriage is the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. And then there's like a poet friend. And then they just start getting mad. at like, I'm the one who represents the viewpoint of X. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like that. Mm-hmm. That felt fresh. Yeah, no, that was great. Was and they couldn't hit a shot on the basketball court, which was a, which was a nice touch. And keep saying swish every <laughs> time they brick it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a cute, it's a really cute movie. It's available on iTunes. It's called They Came Together. It stars the wonderful Paul Rudd and the equally wonderful Amy Poehler. Check it out. Come to our Facebook page. Tell us whether you think modern romance has decayed. We're at uh, <laughs> facebook.com slash culturefest. I officially snorted in response to that, Steve. <laughs> Got my first audible cab fest snort. It still didn't pass the Turing test. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor today, Steve, is Audible, and we're thrilled to be sponsored by them. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio information and entertainment. And they have a special deal for our listeners. If you sign up for a free monthly trial, you get one free book. 
Audible has more than 150,000 titles in its catalog, everything from classics to New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, we've been putting together something we're calling the Culture Gabfest Bucket List, which is a compendium of books that you must read to be a truly educated person in the world. And Steve, I believe you have an addition to the list for today. I do have a recommendation. It may seem a little obvious, but actually I don't think it is. It's Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. It's narrated by Jeremy Irons, who played Humbert Humbert in the Adrian Lyne version of the of the movie. Here's the thing about Lolita. My impression is that a lot, because it's so titillating, because it's so famously salacious, a lot of people read it when they're young. They read it when they first discover such books, and they read Portnoy's Complaint and fill in the blank, a few others, and Lolita. And they kind of get it out of the way and always feel that they've read it. And they remember it as they turn into older fogies. They remember it as this sort of funny titillating. And, of course, it's literary because it's Nabokov and brilliant and linguistically, you know, adept, beyond adept. And on and on and on. I think what they forget about it is, and this is absolutely Nabokov's intention, it is a tragedy. And what Nabokov, I mean, it's a work of genius and completely insuperable genius, if you ask me, and in part because his sense of her tragedy, of Nabokov's tragedy, is as total as Humbert's is oblivious, though Humbert at the end does seem to indicate that he understands he's gratuitously destroyed another human life. But the pathos of that book and that tension is so overwhelming, and it's more than just uh, perverted, and it's more than just a clever puzzle. It is such a, in its own weirdly routed way. It's such a deeply humane and sensitive book, so highly recommended, a total masterpiece, uh, Nabokov's Lolita. I feel like the whole bucket list could be Nabokov, but we'll, we'll live with that one for now. That's true. So if you want to learn more about the special deal for Culture Fest listeners, go to audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, thanks, Julia. Moving on. The Leftovers is the new HBO TV show based on a novel of the same name by Tom Parada. He co-created the series with a veteran of the TV show Lost. The Leftovers tells the story of one small town as it tries to make sense of the events of October 14th, the day when 2% of the world's population in an instant disappeared without a trace or an explanation. What to make of what appears to be a global rapture? The show stars Justin Theroux as the emotionally complicated but predictably hot police chief and Margaret Qualley as his emotionally complicated but predictably hot daughter. Let's listen to a clip. Okay, parade should end about 11 at the park, and then we'll unveil the statue, which I'm told is terrifying. We have to do that tomorrow? Hector's been working on it for a year. It's kind of weird just to leave a sheet on it. Okay, we'll quickly unveil the statue. The Girl Scouts will read the names. I'll say a few words, introduce Nora Durst. What's she going to say? She lost her entire family, Doug. She'll say whatever the fuck she wants to. And there we have it, our very first Heroes Day. Any questions? Yeah, I still don't think they were heroes. My brother-in-law disappeared and he was a dipshit. They're heroes because no one's gonna come to a parade on we don't know what the fuck happened day. The DSD has proclaimed a federal holiday of remembrance and that's what they're calling our departed because that's how we want to remember them. Everyone loves a hero, so we're all going to have a nice walk through town, have a good cry, and then move on. It's time. Everybody's ready to feel better. 
All right, John. Well, obviously the show is structured around an obvious kind of glaring question, which is where did these people go? Why did they go there? On and on and on. But it's made up of, uh, in the actual you know telling of it, sort of mini big questions that are implied by the disappearance. Who are we? Are we the saved or the damned? So there's that. It's like big metaphysical TV, as I said, in the true detective mode. It's also genre TV. You're either going to be gripped by it or not gripped by it. I'm really curious what your reaction was. I'm not sure I would say I was gripped by it. Uh, it definitely is very successful in, in positing a bunch of questions, both the big ones you uh, already mentioned and smaller ones about sort of the mechanics of what's going on in this world post-rapture. At least in the first episode, it seems like they're setting many different balls in motion down a hill and almost maybe too many because you don't really spend much time with, with each of the different characters you're introduced to. It seems like there's this cult called the Guilty Remnant that dress all, dresses all in white and doesn't speak and chain smokes and the sort of secrets of their uh, organization are, are sort of introduced but barely investigated. And then there's another cult with a sort of charismatic leader who seems to accept large uh, envelopes of money in, in uh uh, exchange for hugs, which apparently relieve people of the rapture-induced uh, anxiety uh, that they are harboring in their bodies. Um, so I was definitely, my curiosity was piqued, but for me, um, the tone of the first episode, at least, was so relentlessly bleak that I felt a little beaten down by the end of the show, and I, I can't say that my my curiosity um, sort of overruled my, my feeling of, of just not necessarily wanting to be in that world anymore uh, mm-hmm. by the end of the episode. I, I couldn't say I was eager for for episode two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Julia, so it's unremittingly bleak in tone and content. Um, also, uh, you know, within two minutes of the sh- uh, show starting, you hear someone quoting by name Wittgenstein over the radio. Someone poses the question that Einstein famously posed, whether God plays dice with the universe, Einstein thought no. Uh, it made me ask the somewhat smaller question, is television the proper medium for these, you know, rather portenty questions? What did you think? Did you think this was uh, was a successful blend of a uh, high, low, and medium? You're trying to provoke my anti-snobbery by getting me to defend the notion that TV would be a perfectly fine medium in which to consider and conjure metaphysical questions, which I do believe. However... I do not think this show is up to it on the execution. I don't think... I mean, I agree with John. It's bleak, and I don't want to spend any time in the universe, and I I don't think I want to watch it. I think the two things that might make me want to watch it more might be if I felt that this great mystery was going to be intriguingly or satisfyingly resolved. And there, I have a real trust problem, because one of the creators is Damon Lindelof, who's the guy who drove the bus of Lost straight into a wall of just not, you know, creating all these intriguing (laughs) mysteries that he never explained that were totally unsatisfyingly resolved that made the whole show seem to fall apart like a house of cards. Like, why would I get on the Lindelof Express again? I've been burned and I don't I don't need that in my life. The other thing that might make me want to watch it is its sophistication and the elegance with which it contemplates these big life questions, because you don't see them contemplated very often. It is sort of surprising to see a television show that is basically about grief, seemingly, grief and anxiety. I mean, that's not like, like the log line for that is slightly surprising, right? And I just don't think it seems that smart or sophisticated in how it's telling the story. It relies very heavily on an incredibly overbearing soundtrack. Like there's sort of scenes where people are supposed to seem tense and they're just like wandering clench-faced around a suburban house and then the sound falls out and there's just like booming, booming music. Like, I haven't heard music that loud on any show. Just It felt very ham-fisted. I, I just, 
I don't I don't trust the guy who's driving it. I don't think the scenery is that interesting, and it makes me really sad, and I don't want to watch it. Speaking of shards, this is also a show where you know a character smashes a framed photograph in the first ten minutes, and then another character notices that broken photograph in the last 10 minutes and starts picking apart the shards as like somber music plays in the background and stares lovingly at the photograph. Yeah, like, it's, it's just, just like all a little obvious. Yeah. One thing that kept striking me was that it used to be enough for premium cable TV that you had more sex and violence and profanity than you were allowed to have on network. That was the draw. We're obviously, we're way past that point and now people feel like they need to ask kind of grad schooly, metaphysically loaded big questions uh, at least on on some of these shows, on more of these shows than they used to, and and it is getting a little portentous, uh, you know, uh, and a little, uh, you know, just a little gas filled. It seems to me. And uh, other than that, I kind of, I mean, I know it's sort of bizarre to say it. I kind of liked it. I thought it was creepy, and I sort of became interested in the really large question. The one thing I will say though is that is that when you go, like, we love scrambling low and high. We love scrambling the brows. We love living in this kind of no-brow universe. However, if this were like unabashedly highbrow, you would never find out what happened to those people. It would be like a Camus, you know, a contemporary version of, of um, you know, of the plague or something. And what is it like to be trapped in this world? And what does humanity do to one another when they can't find out the answer to what happened to these people and on and on and on? That would be so unsatisfying in this medium and should be. It should remain unsatisfying. You want, like, they've set it up, right? The reason the bus of Lost went over the cliff of Julia Turner's high expectations and goodwill was that was that the setup was so beautiful. And, and really, a, a beautiful setup turns out to be useless if you don't fulfill it in some equally elegant way. And so I'm worried, too, that, you know, no matter how much I enjoy the journey, if they don't, if they don't really, you know, nail it with where these people went and why they went there— you're going to have some angry people. You're going to have some mobs. Uh, i just like to note that I'm pretty sure one character is reading Camus at some point in this uh, in the pilot. Yeah. Am I not wrong? Yeah. I think <laughs> so they're they, right. They seem to be on the, stranger, same, yeah. on the same page as you, Steve. Um, but I actually think that um, <laughs> my prediction is that this show will ultimately like have a pretty neat and tidy resolution. I just think like Lindelof was really scarred by the reaction to the mm-hmm. Lost finale. And I think they're going to overcorrect and ultimately tell us exactly what happened to the 2% of the population that disappeared overnight uh, for whatever that's worth. I mean, in the same way, you know, True Detective also kind of wrapped its story up in a, in a relatively neat little bow, especially compared to the, you know, ridiculous conspiracy theories that were being bandied about on places like Slate.com and every other uh, website uh, on the internet. Uh, you know, people Fly had... By night <laughs> yeah. You know, people were saying, oh, obviously Elvis Presley, you know, is the one who is the spaghetti monster. Like, that's so obviously been indicated in episodes, you know, six, seven, and nine. Um, whereas, you know, and in the end, in the end, it was a character you'd been, you know, you kind of thought maybe it was from the beginning. And I, I feel like we're at a moment where a lot of creators of shows like this are maybe more likely to give us what we think we maybe want. Although I'm not sure I want that from this show. I think this show could be kind of cool if it didn't tell us. If, but to Julia's point, if it were entertaining along the way, which I'm not sure the show is. Mm, okay. Well, the show is called The Leftovers. It's on HBO. It's uh, based on a novel by Tom Parada. It has uh, some genetic material in common with the TV show Lost. Check it out. Uh, let us know what you think of it. Uh, are you hooked? I mean, it doesn't sound like any of us are. I'd watch it again. Sounds like you two are pretty much off the train. Anyway, come to <laughs> Facebook.com slash CultureFest and uh, let us know. All right. Well, before we continue on, Julia, we got some business to attend to. What do you got? 
Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment to remind our listeners about Slate Plus, which is our new membership program for listeners and readers. It costs five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year, and it gives you all kinds of perks, including uh, the ability to listen to our podcast ad-free, the ability to listen to special bonus segments each week. On today's show, for example, our special plus-only segment is in honor of the forthcoming 4th of July, and it will be me, John, and Steve discussing our favorite founding fathers and how our opinions about those gentlemen have changed over time, along with uh, our growing selves and the growing historiography on each of them. So to learn more about the program, go to slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. Are people starting to notice that they hate the Internet? For half a generation or so, the <laughs> <laughs> you like that, huh? For half a generation or so, the net has been every utopian's waking dream. But over time, it's become as routinized and corporatized, as noisy and chaotic, or worse, as falsely intimate as most public spaces. This is the animating spirit behind The Onion's new spin-off parody website, ClickHole. Its most obvious targets are Upworthy and BuzzFeed. Though one of the creators says, interestingly, no, it's even worse than that. What he's parodying are his friends' daily postings on their Facebook feeds. Uh, we've turned the internet, Julia Turner, from the expansion of the American frontier off into infinity, a preserver of all human liberty, into cute goat videos and uh, confirmation biases of the worst kind. Uh, in a word, we've turned it into clickbait. Aren't you uh, guilty as charged as a Slate.com factotum? You're not a factotum. <laughs> a Slate.com sachem? What are you? I don't know. What are you at Slate? A poobah? Poobah. You're a poobah. I'll be a poobah. Sounds so sweet. Um... Yeah, I so it's funny. I I like the way you framed this segment because I do think with any new medium, with any genre, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with romantic comedies. There's there's a moment where the creators of the original thing get ahead, and then there are times when the satirists get ahead. And I sort of feel like for the last few years, with the rise of of BuzzFeed, and then more recently with the launch of all these different venture-funded sites like Vox.com and um, 538 over at ESPN and, you know, all of these various new entrants into the Internet space, there has been a rapid expansion of the way in which people tell stories on the Internet. And I feel like with ClickHole, the satirists have, like, caught up. Like, they've, st- they've, they've caught up to where the Internet has gotten to in the last year or two, and they now have the Internet's number in a manner that is pretty enjoyable to experience. <laughs> I think it's pretty good and pretty funny. And I, I think as a as a creator and poobah of internet content, I think it's good for us. It keeps us honest. It forces us to recognize some of the lazy tropes that um, even a respectable site like Slate could sometimes fall prey to. And uh, I'm all for it. I think it was really smart. I mean, the real problem with The Onion over the past few years is that the thing they are satirizing is no longer the dominant mm. media stripe. Like, they were... they have been satirizing a local newspaper and that was really really funny in the era when the local newspaper was not a sad dying institution but it became increasingly irrelevant feeling uh, in Mm. the last few years and I think this is a smart pitch back towards relevancy and I find it pretty pertinent right okay so uh, John exactly right Julia's hit the nail on the head right the the onion can't go on satirizing uh, this thing this anachronistic thing off into infinity forever. Now they're turning to the um, to the internet. They don't want to get caught in the same trap as our rom-com satirists. Uh, so they're ahead of the game. Let me throw a quote at you that came from um, uh, the New Yorker.com. Clickhole is funny because so much of the internet is sad. Is that why the satire is so timely? Because we're not 
yet fully aware of that, but the satire is making us much more aware of it. Are you asking me whether the internet is sad? <laughs> you really do think the romance has gone from life, Steve. You know, I have to separate myself here because, you know, every day at 3 o'clock, Julia Turner and I sit down and write headlines for the homepage of Slate.com. And so we enjoy, I think we enjoy ClickHole on the level of being perpetrators of uh, writing clickbaity headlines sometimes. We, we strive not to do that. Have we never written a vaguely clickbaity headline? I don't think I could say that. Um, but then, you know, why is it enjoyable to someone who isn't an editor at a website? Um, I think the reason isn't necessarily that the internet is sad. It's just that, there, you know, everyone recognizes that this kind of story is out there now and that this kind of story is irresistible. Um, you know, you can be the most high-minded um, you, you know, uh, you can be the most high-minded user of the internet and think that you're logging on to check out the latest from the London Review of Books, but you get to your Twitter feed and you see that BuzzFeed has posted, you know, 10 photographs of basset hounds running through the sand, and the next thing you know, you're on image nine of that slideshow or, uh, you know, something else, whatever happens to, you know, be your your um, your weakness, the internet has, has found a way to exploit it. And so there's a vague embarrassment that comes with that or maybe an acute embarrassment that comes with having clicked through to that. And I think ClickHole has done a really great job both of skewering the media organizations who've, who've kind of made that part of their business model, but also I think the sort of rank-and-file Internet users recognize that, like, oh, my God, yeah, I've fallen for that before, and this, is, and this send-up of the kind of thing that I've fallen for is very clever. I'm not sure that it means that the Internet is sad. It means that the Internet has found a way to deliver great joy that is also not necessarily the most high-minded joy. I think we should read a few headlines on the site before we get further in this conversation because if people haven't been reading it, they may not, they may not have a, a strong sense of what we're talking about. So I have one, which is uh, my favorite. So my f- favorite headline so far was, this stick of butter is left out at room temperature. You won't believe what happens next. And that headline is not necessarily the what's so great about it, but it, if you click the link, you get to a video that I think is like three hours long, and it's literally a video of a pa- of a stick of butter left at room temperature slowly melting into a plate. Uh, and obviously what's being sent up there is is a style of headline writing that I think was really kind of mastered by Upworthy, where the headline tantalizes you with this you-won't-believe-what-happens-next uh, cue. And obviously what they're, the joke here is that what happens next is exactly what you think would happen next. And there's a great kind and of absurdist And it's a massive waste of your time to find out. Exactly. And, and I also, curious in the first place I had a great yeah. moment of misapprehension of that video, which I saw it, anticipated what the joke would be, and was like, well, I'm not going to watch this. And I saw the 3.00, and I was like, I'm not going to watch a three-minute video of Bel- Melted Butter. <laughs> I guess they sped it up. So I kind of like skipped ahead to halfway through, and I was like, oh, it's half melted. Then I skipped away to the end. I was like, oh, it's all the way melted. And then I looked at it again this morning in preparation for the segment, and only then realized it was a three-hour video. <laughs> and to their credit, I mean, like, I, I, like, got the joke, right? I was like, okay, I watched for 10 seconds and said, okay, this is clearly... They're just going to let it melt. But I was like, well, are they going to do something at the end? Are they going to, is there some other beat in this joke? And so I kind of, I like jumped ahead in the video to see if there was some, you know, kicker to it. But there wasn't. And then I think that was a genius stroke on their part. Also, by the way, I want to interject here and make absolutely clear that the London Review of Books is my embarrassment on the web. Oh, bullshit. (laughs) I bet there's some Jets message boards that would beg to differ on that front. Oh, my God, you've NSA'd me. It's, true. <laughs> it's not a secret if anyone's ever listened to you talk. Yeah, I know your username. Anyway, um, can I read a few more of the headlines that I liked? One was after that um, handsome mugshot of that felon went viral a couple weeks ago. They had article, Are We Setting Unrealistic Standards of Beauty for Our Felons? Which is a very funny send-up of sort of like lady blog uh, body consciousness watching. 
uh, eight on-screen couples with zero chemistry, where they just pick two people in movies who were never intended to have romantic <laughs> chemistry and talk about how they had none. That was a good one. Um, a few more. Quiz, is your dad proud of you? I also really liked Stanley Tucci's racist tirade, Our Take If It Ever Happened, which just has this sort of like hypothetical high umbrage that that skewered a very particular stripe of internet writing. Uh, And then a recent one that I really loved was Seven Differences Between the TV Version of the World Cup and the Novel. The time is finally here. The latest entry in J. Michael Friedman's smash series of novels, The World Cup colon Brazilian Nocturne, is now a TV miniseries that is airing over the next month. While it's exciting for Cupper fans, there are several key differences between the book and the TV version. Here are the biggest ones so far. Warning, spoilers ahead. Stop reading here if you aren't current on the books. And one is, throughout the book series, Friedman describes soccer balls as not bigger than the size of an orange, lumpy sorts of things. But for TV, producers beefed up the soccer balls to a whopping circumference of 68 centimeters and made them perfectly round and there's a photo of a soccer ball which is just sort of there's a delightful dada-ness i mean that's the reason why i disagree with that new yorker point that clickhole exists entirely to point out that the internet is a sad place to me that is like a joyful mashup of two different slightly inane types of internet content one of which is slavering obsession with the world cup which is very satisfying to follow on the internet if you care about it i or so i hear i do not um and then the kind of uh obsessive coverage of game of thrones and the hbo adaptation thereof where there are constantly posts and slate has certainly posted some of them where people are like comparing the minutiae of the book to the way it's executed on tv and just the data absurdity of of applying that to a nonfiction sporting event just made me cackle and it did not make me sad and it did not even really make me feel that guilty about my internet reading habits but it felt like sharp satire it felt more like what you were talking about with spinal tap steve where it feels like this site is constantly putting its finger on little subcurrents and subthreads of the way different corners of the internet talk, the cliches they fall back upon uh, in a way that feels fresh and exciting. Like there's there's now a really good court jester in the halls of the internet, and that always makes everybody better and keeps everybody honest, and, and it's fun. But the, here's the question I have, John, is I agree with everything Julia said. Um, how evergreen is this? Never underestimate the onion and never underestimate the internet, uh, internet's fertility in producing completely inane content. So presumably it could go on forever. But isn't there a part of you that wonders if it'll still be funny in six months? Yeah, that's the question that I, that I have. And I don't, I don't know the answer yet. I think uh, for all the reasons we've enumerated, they've done a tremendous job of sending up the kind of uh, internet tropes that have developed in the last few years. But there's a certain one-noteness to the site if you, sp- if you start spending a decent amount of time on it. Um, a lot of the um, jokes are headline jokes. Like it, the joke is in the headline. And when you click through, there's maybe a, like a sort of punchline there. But it's not as rich a piece of humor as a great Onion article is. I mean, I think, you know, you guys were talking earlier about how this clickhole is, is a very smart adaptation for the Onion company because it brings it into the web world. Uh, as opposed to the newspaper world. But really, The Onion had stopped satirizing newspapers a long time ago, I think. I mean, it was, it's not really... When you go to The Onion's main site, you're not going there to, like, make fun of The New York Times. I mean, it's there is still an element of them playing with newspaper conventions and newspaper headline writing conventions. But the humor has long since become something wonderful and weird and different than just, you know, area man, AP headline writing jokes. Um, and I think the best click hole material, like the joke that Julia just described in excruciating detail... Uh, <laughs> Are the ones, you know, that have that kind of rich experience on the other end where it does play with, 
this idea of a novel being adapted and this World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not just sort of like, oh, you know, we saw a, a new, the latest iteration of a goofy, upwardly style headline, and we're we're mocking it with a headline that's only maybe ten percent more ridiculous. And I don't, you know, the internet does keep evolving, so maybe Clickhole will will have enough uh, ammunition. But I think in order to really be as great as the Onion, it needs to have a majority of its articles deliver that wonderful uh, richness, uh, as well as the kind of just like you know one note biting, like oh, we're making fun of your headline writing style. Mm-hmm. You're saying that you hope that Clickhole won't devolve into clickbait. Or will elevate itself <laughs> beyond clickbait. Yeah, well, like I went to the Onion this morning, right? The the, the main Onion uh, site, and uh, there was this great little th- throwaway thing. It was like local mom brings boy two different sizes of T-shirt in the Gap, and also a blue one and green one. And it wasn't really a joke about newspapers. It was a joke about being ten and going into the fitting room and like asking your mom, you know, like being embarrassed to come out with your new T-shirt on and asking your mom to go get you. The same shirt in a medium and also in green. And it was like a totally brilliant piece of comic writing that had nothing to do with newspapers. And I think Clickhole can do that while also, you know, giving us guff for the for our worst, um, you know, headline writing and uh, clickbaiting tendencies, then it will be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Okay, it's called Clickhole uh, because all content deserves to go viral. That's uh, very funny. Um, and it's a product of The Onion, so check it out. Tell us if you think it's funny. Okay, well, now is the moment in our show where we endorse John Swansburg. What do you have? Uh, at the risk of um, making a mockery of myself and tr- out Metcalfing Metcalf, I'm going to uh, endorse a favorite romantic comedy of mine. Uh, of course, I speak of Max Ophel's La Ronde from 1950. <laughs> uh, it's really less of a romantic comedy than it is a uh, comedy about romance, uh, if you think about it. <laughs> In all seriousness, I love this movie. I'm a huge Max Ophels fan. For a long time, I'd only ever seen The Earrings of Madame Duh, which is his uh, masterpiece, uh, which Dana uh, had introduced me to years ago. But La Ronde is this wonderful movie in which uh, there's a series of um, paramours meet in various places in Vienna uh, in 1900, and there's a, it has a kind of circular structure where... Is it based on the Schnitzler play? <laughs> indeed! <pants>? Indeed! <laughs> the controversial Schnitzler play was adapted by Ophels for this film. Uh, and... We know, one, a pair of, of lovers meet and then one separates and goes and meets another lover and then they separate and one party meets another lover and then it sort of it starts with one with a prostitute and circles back around to her and there's this wonderful uh, carousel theme and it's just a beautiful um, exploration of of uh, romance and its fleetingness. All right, Julia, what do you got? Uh, I have an endorsement. It's a slightly offbeat one, pegged to our second topic, the leftovers. If you are curious about the evangelical right and its beliefs about the rapture, you should pick up and read Left Behind, which is the much maligned, much scorned pulp thriller about the rapture. Like it literally has planes crashing as the pilots go whoop into the sky. Um, and it's, it's, if you are not a believer, preposterous, but also kind of a whirlwind tour through what a certain subset of American culture believes is imminent or at least going to happen at some point. You know, I mean, I read it with anthropological interest. There's also some anti-Semitism in it. It's not like a book I endorse as a good book. But as a way of acquainting yourself with a mode of thinking about the end of the world, if you're the sort of person who hears about the rapture, the end times, or jokes about the apocalypse, but aren't acquainted with what people actually believe about it, it's kind of a good way to acquaint yourself with it. Um, and I think the books are, are going to be in our consciousness a bit further. There was They were turned into a movie series with Kirk Cameron, but apparently Nick Cage has now also signed on to, to be in them further. So I think Left Behind uh, is not going to leave us behind. And so I, it's actually like a pretty satisfying genre read. 
and a bit of a cool anthropological tour at the same time. So the book is Left Behind by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. And if you have mixed feelings about supporting their uh, commercial endeavors, see if you can just find it for free on the back shelf of some rental house this summer. But if you do find it, pick it up and start it. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty entertaining read. Oh, my. All right. Well, I'm going to endorse with one eye on the 4th of July. Uh, let me get there slightly circuitously. It'll shock you that that's uh, what I'm doing. But anyway, in the novel um, Independence Day by Richard Ford, which is a tremendous uh, uh, book, to begin with, one of the themes of the book is uh, the narrator, Frank Bascom, is, the, is divorced and he has a son and, and they're driving, I think, maybe to the Baseball Hall of Fame. They have a long drive ahead of them. And Frank is trying to convey to his son what Independence Day means, right? Hence the title of the book. And he has a book that he wants his kid to read. And I always thought that this was a wonderful gesture on the part of Richard Ford, uh, which he was saying that many of my ideas about the significance of July 4th are derived from this book. And you all ought to read it. He's trying to give us the book in the same way that Frank is trying to give it to his son. Well, that book is called The Declaration of Independence, A Study in the History of political ideas. It's by Carl Becker. I believe it was written in the 1920s. I think the first edition of it came out in 22. But it goes into all of the uh, intellectual and historical antecedents to the Declaration, which was, of course, the founding document of the United States written by Thomas Jefferson. And he goes into where the style of it came from, what it meant personally to Jefferson, what it meant in Jefferson's um, ongoing debate about what our government should look like, you know, preeminently, obviously, with the Federalists or what became the Federalists and uh, and uh, Adams. But it's a beautiful and a small book, and it's careful, precise, elegant, uh, much like the Declaration itself. But it just reminds us, you know, if we need reminding, that we're a very bizarre country. We were founded not in some misty, mythic past, but within you know, uh, historical, vivid historical memory by people who are committed to an idea. This is a country founded on on an idea, an idea. It's more than geography, certainly more than any cohesive notion of ethnicity. Um, and uh, and to know what that idea is, it does seem to me, is this sort of our universal obligation as American citizens. And this is, to my mind, the best one of the best places to begin to find it. So anyway, Carl Becker's classic study, The Declaration of Independence, it's called Declaration of Independence, A Study in the History of Political Ideas, a wonderful book, highly recommended. That sounds great. Uh, John, thank you so much for filling in. Um, my pleasure. How did I do? You know, you set the bar so high. Did I, did I touch the, the bottom fringe of, of Dana's cape? Uh, you, were, you were adequate, I think, if, if she Swish. were... <laughs> Swish. <laughs> Swish. <laughs> I'll say no more. Adequate from Steve Metcalf. I'll take that. There you go. Julia Turner, you were, as always, also adequate. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks. You know how to make a girl feel special. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For John Swansburg and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next week. So let's-